Now, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word, of, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who had came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And when he arrived and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when the, he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. Good morning, everyone. Good, I needed that one. So, um, thank you, Steve. Um, this week, my wife, Amelia, my amazing wife, took a, a much-deserved trip to see some friends back east in North Carolina. So it was me and my four boys. Most of the week, she came back last night. So I'm happy and smiling. It is by the grace of God that I'm standing here. And I'm joking, but not joking. We're on part three of a four-part vision series for 2019 for our church. The four pieces of this vision come from what we've been learning from the book of Acts. We've been studying the book of Acts for a while now since the fall. We've been looking at chapter one all the way through chapter 12 and a little bit of chapter 13. So our vision comes from our, our entire study, but especially from one particular church mentioned in the book of Acts. That's a church we just heard uh, Lisa read the, the text about. It's the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch, for me, presents us with a blueprint, a unique and a special blueprint for me for the kind of church that I am praying and hoping that Jesus would build here with us at Trinity. And it is the kind of church that I see he is building with us. This church, very unique in the book of Acts. It, it shows us, the church at Antioch shows us, a church doesn't have to choose between going deep inward and being strong inward and going outward in ministry. A church doesn't have to choose between going deeper together in the gospel and then going out in mission to the world. These things the church at Antioch shows us are inseparably connected. They go together. They're joined and they're synergistic in any healthy and vibrant and faithful church. We spent the, the last two weeks looking at the depth of this community. We talked about how they were going deep in Scripture together how they were going deep 
in prayer together. And these two things, when put together, created this, this vibrant, this healthy, this committed community that was marked by their joy and by their faithfulness to Jesus. And they were very, um, very surprising to their, to their neighbors in the church at Antioch, to this, this city in Antioch. They had never seen anything like this community happen before. So th- this community, they were, they were studying Scripture probably daily. They were, they were praying fervently together. They earned the nickname, and it's, it's here in the text, Christians. They had no category for them. They had no way to explain them other than that. These people, they are, they are obsessed with this person, Jesus. And they're framing and orienting their entire life and the life of their community around this man that they believe rose from the dead. So chapter 11 and chapter 13 in the book of Acts, it tells us how did this dynamic and vibrant church come to be? How did they grow in their secret we, we saw the last two weeks, it was fairly simple and fairly straightforward. They went deep in Scripture together, and they prayed together. And in 2019, we're praying that that would be us. That would be us as a church. Now we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at the outward impact of this church. That was their inward life. What was their outward impact? We're going to talk about going out in compassion this morning And next week, Pastor E.C. will lead us in looking at how they went out in witness. So I shared last Sunday at our town hall meeting, if you were there, one of our top priorities as a church this year is what we're calling relaunching our compassion ministry, our ministry outward to meeting the needs of the poor in our community. We're, We're asking the question again as a church, how can we find the ways God, that you have given us unique resources in a way that matches the unique needs in our communities. And there, when we find those places of match, we find ways that we're called to compassion ministry. And through, through Trinity's history, we talked about this last week, there have been many faithful efforts to do this. Some of you are faithfully doing this in your own lives right now. There's been a lot of good work and hard work that's been done, but last year we hit a bit of a wall and figuring out how as a community we can be engaged in compassion ministry. But we're not giving up because we cannot give up. Because as we'll see this morning, going out in compassion for the poor, practically loving the alien, the refugee, the widow, and the orphan is not a side ministry. It's not an optional add-on for churches who can do it. It is at the very heart of God, the very heart of the gospel. How do we see that in this story? Well, from this very short story, we're going to look just at at verses 27 through 30. We already looked at 11 through 26. In these short four verses, from this short story of compassion of the church at Antioch, I want to look at three steps. Three steps for a church in going outward in compassion. That's knowing the needs of others, feeling the needs of others, and then meeting the needs of others. So first, let's start by looking at how this church became aware of the needs of other people, these needs that they ended up meeting. Look at at verse 27 with me. It says, in those days, that's how it begins, 
What days is this talking about? These are the days where they were growing and learning. They were learning what life looked like to have a life oriented around the person of Christ. So their lives were being changed, and at this point, some prophets came down, it says in verse 27, they came down from Jerusalem to be a part of these gatherings. One of these prophets, we're told his name, his name was Agabus, he stood up in this gathering, and he predicted a severe famine would happen throughout the Roman world. And then we're told, it's like a side note, that this indeed did happen during the reign of the emperor, the Roman emperor Claudius. We have multiple historical sources that confirm that this did happen, that it was a very severe famine, that it had affected this entire Palestinian region and even beyond into North Africa and further north. So, what's going on here? God made this church aware of a particular need before it had even happened. Why? Well, we got to dig in here a little bit because it's connected to the question of what is a prophet and what is prophecy. If you look later on in um, chapter 13, verse 1, we see there that there's a group of people mentioned. They're called prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Saul and other people are mentioned um, who were a part of this particular church. What we see is that Scripture doesn't create a, a very hard and fast line and distinction between prophets and teachers. This is the teaching and instructive ministry happening. But what does a prophet do? What is unique about prophecy compared to teaching? A prophet's call, I would summarize it like this. We can't answer all your questions about what did prophecy look like in the New Testament in here, but here's how I would summarize it. A prophet's call was to create awareness. Awareness of who God is, awareness of who we really are, and awareness of what God is calling us to do. When we think of prophecy, sometimes we think of primarily prediction. But if you look at biblical prophecy, most of it is not prediction but exhortation. And even, this is important, even the parts that are predictive are not solely just predictions. A prophet never prognosticates only, but they give their teaching, their exhortation, not to just prognosticate but to activate, to call God's people to action. That's the purpose here. So it's not like saying something like this, like I predict right now, today, mark it down, write it down, I predict the Lakers will win the NBA finals. And then say that happened, then I would stand up and get to say, yeah, I told you. Isn't that awesome? Like I have special powers, look at me. Or something like I'm going to tell you that in three weeks it will rain again here in Orange County. I predict it and, and maybe it happens. That's not the point of the prophecy of Agabus here. He's, God is making a need known through Agabus in order to what? In order to call the people who are hearing this to act, to activate them. And so Agabus says there will be a severe famine, and all of a sudden the people are aware of a great need. This is the first step for a person or for a church that goes out in compassion to meet the needs of the poor and the oppressed. First step is becoming aware of the needs. And as I was thinking about this for us in Orange County in 2019, becoming aware of the needs of the poor and the oppressed and the needy, the way that I think of that is it is 
easy, very easy for us to become aware of needs, and also almost impossible. It's easy, but for me, it's also almost impossible. Let me explain. It's easy because we see the need. We could all leave this building right now, walk down the street, turn in either direction, and we would probably encounter somebody on the street in need in our community right here all around us. But it's also almost impossible, and I feel this. Because of our middle class, most of us, Orange County lifestyle, our schedules, our commitments, it seems almost impossible for us to become aware of the needs of the poor in a personal way. When we do, for most of us, it's a fleeting thought or a little twinge of guilt. We're not quite sure what to do about it. First step is to ask ourselves, how aware am I? Historically, we know when this famine hit, it, it, it hit a, a large region, but in particular, it hit the area of Judea hard, and it hit the city of Jerusalem hard. And the people who were hit the hardest in the city of Jerusalem were the poor, and in particular, the Christian community. Because many of these early Christians, because of their faith commitment to Jesus, they had become a minority. They had severed some of their support networks. So in particular, the early church in Jerusalem suffered during this famine. Now, I think it's significant. I share that because of this. I think it's significant that God arranged someone, namely this prophet Agabus, who was himself from Jerusalem, to bring awareness to the church at Antioch about this need that was coming up. Because it's one thing for someone to come and say, there is a need over there. People are going to be hungry. People are going to be needy. You guys should all pay attention to that. But it is another thing altogether for someone to come and say, my community is going to be in great need. I, myself, as a part of this community, I'm not going to know how I'm going to eat. They look you in the eye, you look him or her in the eye, and they say, we're facing a great need. God brought somebody to them personally to bring them awareness of this need. And that's the first step, awareness. And there, there are two parts to that first step. There's a prophetic awareness, knowing what Scripture says about our call to serve the poor and meet their needs. And there is the personal awareness. Coming to understand and become aware of the needs of the poor through direct face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact and conversation with people who are poor and needy. That's step one, knowing the needs of others. When we read this story, there's such a natural flow. If you look at it again, it says, they became aware of the need. The prophet Agabus told them they all got on board to meet the need. And then they sent it out. End of story. So simple, awareness to action, done. There's nothing said here about obligation. There's nothing about um, duty here. There's nothing about a pastor or a church leader standing up and say, okay, Agabus just shared everyone, we need to start a ministry, we need to create a system, and we need to do this. Let's get on board. 
it all, when you read it, it appears so much more natural and so spontaneous. It's like when Agabus stood up and he said, there's going to be a great famine. That everybody felt the same thing. He said, we all want to help. We all need to help. God sent them this prophet to make them aware and to act. But for us, in our globally connected world, we can be more aware, and probably we are more aware of the global needs that are all around us, uh, often needs in our community as well. And so we can see much more than the church in the first century ever saw. Yet, at the same time, we can be so unmoved and do nothing about it, especially something that requires personal sacrifice over time. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think it's because awareness isn't enough. There is something between awareness and action, something that links the two. This passage here, the story here, isn't direct and explicit about the link, but if we look at the context in the book of Acts, we see a pattern emerging. And the pattern is this. If you go back to Acts 2, you look at the life of the community, the first church that was ever started. There in Acts 2, it says, what was their community life like? They were devoted to teaching and learning, the apostles' teaching. And it created a community where they sold their stuff. They took the money and they made sure that there was no needy people in the church. Then in Acts 4, the same pattern is repeated. It says, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection. They were teaching. They were teaching deeply. And it says in Acts 4, there was not a needy person among them. And here in the church at Antioch, the same pattern is repeated. They spent a year learning the gospel. Acts 11, at the end of Acts 11, verses 25 and 26. They spent the whole year soaking in the gospel, and then they naturally met a need when they became aware of it. Here is the link between awareness and action in the book of Acts. If the gospel goes deep, when the gospel becomes our controlling center, naturally, the pattern is we will go out and we will meet needs in compassion. And the rest of the New Testament confirms it, that going out in compassion Meeting the needs of the poor when we become aware of them is the test, is the proof, is the sign that the gospel has gone deep in us. How does this work? I want to look at one person who was there on this day when Agabus arrived. I want to look at his story to answer that. How does this happen? How, is, how does it become so natural that we meet the needs of the needy around us? Well, there's someone there in the story we read when Agabus came and he met with this church and this, this person, his, he was changed, his life was changed forever the day that Agabus came to Antioch. And through his response, this person's response and involvement in the relief effort, it became more than just a one-time thing. We read this and we say, oh, that was a one-time thing. They met the needs of the poor. But for this person, it became, in the words of one historian, an obsession for 20 years to help and to serve the poor in this community. 
This person had two obsessions. It was the gospel message and serving the poor. This person was willing to risk his life and to die in order to meet the needs of the poor in Jerusalem that he learned about on this day. And later in Acts, chapter 24, 17, he was meeting with the church. He was on his way back to Jerusalem to deliver them more aid because they were still suffering in poverty. And when he was meeting with the church, lo and behold, who came to this meeting but the prophet Agabus again? Same guy. This is the only time he's mentioned in the Bible twice. He came to this person, and he had some rope in his hands. He tied this person's hands up, and he stood back, and he said, the person whose hands are bound, if this person goes to Jerusalem in this way, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, meaning imprisoned, meaning you're risking your life, Paul, if you step foot in Jerusalem. I just gave it away. <laughs> this person was the Apostle Paul. For 20 years, he preached the gospel. He started churches. And with all these churches, he said, is there one thing that I'm asking you to participate in that is meeting the needs of the poor, specifically the poor in Jerusalem. What he experienced here on this day convinced him of the inseparability of the gospel and compassion for the poor. The clearest example of how he brought other people into this and showed them the link between the gospel and serving the needy is in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. He's encouraging them to give to the poor, just like here in, in the Jerusalem church. They said they would do it. They said, yes, Paul, we're on board. That sounds good. But they'd never followed through. They hadn't given their gift. And so a part of 2 Corinthians is written to encourage them to follow through. And I want to share with you two verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul said to them, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. There's a lot there, but Paul says, I'm not commanding you. I'm not saying to you, do your Christian duty and help the poor. What's going on with you? He says, no, I'm showing you the link between the gospel and the poor. I'm giving you a test. Do you understand the gospel? How deep has it really gone? He doesn't guilt trip them. Instead, he reminds them of the heart of Christianity, the gospel. Using the language of poverty and wealth to awaken within them compassion. What is the gospel, Paul says? Number one, it's the admission that I am poor. I am poor. I have nothing. I can earn nothing before God. I am not just poor, but I am bankrupt and in infinite debt to God. I am poor. But Jesus became poor for me. Jesus didn't give leftovers. Jesus didn't give to those who deserved and wouldn't squander his gifts. He gave everything until he became poor. 
Jesus lived as a poor man. He was born in a stable to a poor family. He had nowhere to lay his head, and finally he laid down his life. He gave everything for someone who had nothing to give to him in return. No way to earn his love and favor, all grace. I am poor, but Jesus became poor for me so that in his poverty I might become rich. He takes my poverty and I get his riches. That means everything I have is a gift. It's not mine by right, not by my merit, not by my effort, but all out of the riches of Jesus' merit, his effort, and his righteousness. This is what has to get into the heart, into our affections, into the place where we feel differently about the poor because of how God feels about us in our poverty. Let me share it like this. How does God see us at our poorest and most broken and empty moments? How do you think God sees you? When God sees us overcome by sin, we're unable to get out of it, we continue to struggle in it, when we're in a cycle that we can't get out of because we don't feel like and we don't truly have the resources to get out of it. What does God feel about you? Maybe you have a particular moment. Maybe you have a particular time. Maybe today you feel like you are completely spiritually empty without any resources. I want to ask you this. How do you think God feels about you in that place? at that moment. Well, you don't have to guess. I can tell you how God feels about you. Because in the Gospels, through the life and the ministry of Jesus, He shows us the most repeated emotion, the most repeated feeling of Jesus in the Gospels is compassion. Compassion on the poor and the broken, the empty, the nothings. Just a few examples. Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the large crowd. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick, Matthew 9. Luke 7, when Jesus saw a widow who lost her only son, he saw her. He had compassion on her. He said, don't weep. He raised her son to life. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus said, what made the Samaritan different? Well, on his journey, he came upon the man in need. When he saw the man, he had compassion. It may be the most well-known parable, the parable of the prodigal son. When the father sees his poor, broken son, who is spiritually and physically bankrupt and poor, while he was still a long way off, it says, the father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and embraced him. You see the pattern in all those? When Jesus saw, when Jesus saw need, poverty, emptiness, bankruptcy, no resources, he felt compassion. 
and then he acted on behalf of the needy. This is why John, in our confessional reading this morning, said, if you see a brother, if you see a brother or sister in need and do not have compassion, the love of God is not in you. Because the sign of the love of God is to feel compassion for the needy and the broken and the poor. This is the heart of God. And friends, this is the heart of God for us in Christ. When that gets into the level of our gut, when we experience the compassion of God, even when we feel like we're at our worst and our poorest, we have nothing to offer Him. That's when the fire can ignite for action on behalf of the poor and the needy. There is a connection between our spiritual poverty and our care and love for those who are materially poor. Awareness, feeling, and now meeting the needs of others in action. There's a lot for us to learn about what this actually looks like. When the gospel takes a hold of us, what kind of action does it lead to? Look at verse 29 with me. I want to read it one more time because each part of it is helpful for us as we think about now what? What are the implications? What kind of action might God call us to personally and as a church? It says here that the Antioch church, each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. I want to pick apart each part of that sentence and consider its application. First, each of the disciples. This was not a side ministry opportunity for those who were passionate about social justice or whose thing was compassion ministry. This was the whole church. Each person sharing in ownership, taking action to help meet a need. Meeting the needs of others is something each of us is called to, each of the disciples according to his ability. Not everyone participated in the same way or at the same level. They didn't all have the same resources, and that's okay. We don't compare ourselves to others or measure our mercy and compassion by what other people are doing and able to do. We must discover, we must pray, we must seek and discern our place in going out in compassion taking into account our season of life, our responsibilities to care for those closest to us. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined. Giving and serving the poor, it takes determination. It takes a decision. The, the word here is the Greek word horizo. Same word is used for God who determined the boundaries of the world and creation. Same word is used for God in determining His plan for redemption for the world. It is not wishy-washy. It's not, I'll do it when I get to it. It's a decision to live within new boundaries with a new horizon for life. My horizon now includes the needs of my neighbors. I make that decision for Christians and non-Christians alike. I think we we have a lot of mental and intellectual agreement about this. There's a lot of social justice passion that we put forth and post about in social media or wherever. But until the needs of others gets into our heart and then there is determination and decision, then we're all just, we're all just talking. This church, each of them, 
determined. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief. This word, send relief, every other place that it's used in the New Testament, it's either translated ministry or service. It's where we get the word deacon or diaconal ministry. In Acts 6.1, the word is used for the ministry of serving food. In Acts 6.4, it's the ministry of the word. Ministry in the Bible is to the whole person. Spiritual, physical, emotional, the whole person. There is no such thing as just physical ministry and spiritual ministry over here. They are joined together in the Bible. It's all just ministry. The ministry of of compassion is both a sign of the gospel. It shows people the gospel in action, and it is a fruit of the gospel. It grows out of a gospel-changed heart. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. This is significant, too, because in the application of serving the poor, of compassion and giving, it's been recognized by some people and emphasized that this is talking about, right here, compassion to other Christians at this point. And that is true. Because in one sense, there is a priority, there's something inherent, there's something natural about meeting the needs of other Christians. Why? Well, it's here right in the text. To become a Christian is to be brought into a, a whole new family. So that there is, and this sounded radical at the time and it sounds radical today, there is no difference between the needs of my immediate family in the needs of my brothers and sisters in the church. That's how Acts 2 worked. That's how Acts 4 worked. That's how it's working right here. At this time, the word brother, to call somebody a brother, that was the strongest bond and obligation in society. And this is saying, because we have been brought in across ethnic lines, across geographic lines into this family by the grace of God, we relate to others by grace. You're my brothers and sisters Your needs are my needs. My needs are your needs. But the wonderful thing about this theme as it's developed is this family is not an inward-focused family saying, it's all just about us. We're going to take care of only our own. No, but the, the, the family that is formed in the gospel, these brothers and sisters in Christ, they're the kind of family that is always saying, we have an open door. Come be a part of this family. We want to show you the grace that we have been given. And so throughout the New Testament, there is an assumption that Christians will show compassion on each other, and there is the calling for Christians to show compassion on those who are their neighbors, to anyone who is in need in their community. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters. There's awareness, there's feeling, and then there's action. Two final thoughts. I want to say this. Some of you are doing this in very personal ways. You are pace setters for our church community in going out in compassion for those in need. You are sacrificing much to touch a life or people in need. And so this morning, 
I want you to be encouraged. You are showing us, you are showing others the love of God in action. This is not a sermon for you to take on anything extra into your life. But this is a sermon for you to hear these words, don't lose heart. Keep enduring. Keep doing what you're doing. When you feel like you have nothing left to give, bring your poverty to Jesus. Let Him fill you once again with compassion. And may He fill you with strength. And may we, our family, your family, come alongside you in the way you're serving and giving yourself. Some of us, we're struggling. At this point in our lives, we don't see an opportunity for us to show compassion in a regular and a personal way. So this message is for us, and I include myself here, a message to be challenged, and I am challenged. And so for us, the message is awareness. Let God show you, ask God to show you, who can I serve? Break my heart, show me your heart for them, and lead me. Help me make that determination and action to serve, to give, to love in the way that I have been loved. May God make us a church that goes out in compassion as those who have been given that compassion in Christ. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us aware, more and more aware of all that we've been given, how it's all a gift, and more and more aware of those in our communities whom we can serve with what we have been given. Show us. Help us see. Help us also see the endless riches of your compassion and grace that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus. We know we will never, ever fully understand and grasp all those riches. Make us aware. Change our hearts so that we gravitate and move towards those who are in need and show us what it looks like to take action in a way that would draw others to you and show them just a taste and a glimpse of all the compassion you have stored up for those who come to you and your son. And we pray in his name. Amen.